Welcome to the Neurodivergent Selling Podcast, where we explore the experiences and perspectives of individuals with neurodivergent conditions in the world of sales. I am thrilled to introduce our guest this week, Nathan Cornfield. He's a talented writer and advocate for autism awareness. Despite facing challenges due to his Asperger's syndrome, Nathan has found success in the field of writing and is passionate about educating others on the realities of life on the spectrum. Join us as we delve into today's journey and gain valuable insights into how individuals with neurodivergent conditions can thrive in sales and entrepreneurship. Well, welcome to this session of Neurodivergent Selling. We're here with Nathan Cornfield. Nathan, welcome to our show. I'm so happy to have you here and learn all about your story and what you have to share with us today. Thank you for having me. You have a really interesting story and you've published a bit. That's how I found you because of what you were writing and publishing on LinkedIn. So I would love to dive into just kind of, can you set the scene for us and explain to our audience um, where you're coming from and what some of your earlier experiences were like? In regards to autism? Yes, please. Well, where I'm coming from is now when I'm willing to embrace my autism to, to the full and I'd like to speak more more <clears throat> I'd like to speak about it more often particularly to those who perhaps don't have any experience with autism and so I can help them to understand it well that's why you're here that's that <laughs> we definitely want to help be, that yeah I think, I think go ahead I was just going to say, I think it should be those of us who are on the spectrum who are leading the way, you know, because um, it's only us that have the lived Yeah, my, um, I have a, quite a bit of experience, uh, quite a lot of experience with Asperger. My sister, who's, um, I guess she's two and a half years younger than I, um, she actually lives in the UK. And she's a freelance photographer um, in London, and she uh, she went to um, I guess what we we call special a special school here in the United States um, until she was in um, sixth grade, which is what is middle school. So six, seven, eight is middle school, and then our high school, which is like your secondary school, I think. Um, yeah, and. Um, you know, there was um, adjustments. I, I read a lot of your story, and I know that when you moved from your primary to your secondary school, that was a big adjustment for you, and that was something that she dealt with also um, and had her own experiences with bullying. She had two older brothers that kind of helped with that to, you know, a degree. Um, but, you know, one thing that, that she... Um, was sort of her superpower, if you will, is she was very, very interested in uh, colonial history and specifically colonial Williamsburg. And she uh, knew more than probably anybody in the whole world, I would guess, about Sheffield silver. 
um, and its connection to Williamsburg. And she had made a goal to go to the College of William and Mary, uh, probably like in fifth grade, and that's where she went. And it was her, her ability to just hone in on what she wanted to do and then accomplish it. Have you? Did you have experiences like that yourself where you knew exactly what you wanted and then just went, went for it and made it happen? Not especially. I've spent most of my life wandering from one job to the next, trying to find... Uh, that sounds uh, like me. Trying to, <laughs> trying to find... I can set down... Yeah, that, um, that's similar to my, talking, my journey. If you're talking about... If you're talking about interest, then yes, I have. Uh, I can cite quite a few interests that I have where I've um, become something of an expert on. I mean, just look behind me if you want evidence of that. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, right. You probably can't tell just from what you can see on camera, but all the books I have are arranged by author, and in 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 order of publication as well. So you have a very intricate system of filing, in other words, for you to find things. That's, you know, that, that's, uh, that's also something that um, it's funny because um, all of us at RND seem to have things that are challenging and then other things that are, we become quite adept at doing. My filing system needs some work. I can tell you that. So... <laughs> <laughs> Not, not, I know where everything but is, close, but I, could, I, could I couldn't and, send anybody uh, out of my house. So. I love Nathan's organization, organizing system, and I have one very similar to that in my own house. Uh, I like everything to have a very specific place. <laughs> we couldn't be <laughs> probably not uh, Nathan I like that you mentioned in some of your writings that you had a very consistent lunch at school can you share that with us <laughs> well variety wasn't exactly a concept I was familiar with growing up <laughs> certainly in terms of food. And I think to an extent it remains the same today. I know what I like, I stick with. I'm not very adventurous in that respect. Um, sometimes I'll try something new and if I don't like it, I'll be disappointed. I think, oh, well, I could have had something I enjoyed instead. Um, but I think the travels that I've undertaken have helped to uh, have helped me to deal with that in a, to some extent. Because whenever I go abroad, I'm always very keen on trying local foods and and what have you. I'm very interested in immersing myself in other cultures, and so I think as the years have gone on, that dependency on structure and routine when it comes to eating has dissipated so, so, certainly to some extent I won't say entirely I feel that um, 
but I feel maybe my routine is getting more restricted. Um, I don't like to call myself a picky eater, but I'm very selective and, and I understand there's certain foods that I like to eat and certain foods that I don't and certain textures that I like, certain textures I do not like. There are certain temperatures that I like and temperatures that I don't like. And if it's not prepared the exact way that I like, I don't want to eat it. And it's yeah. not even that it, it tastes poorly. It's that it feels like a waste for me. Why eat something that I don't thoroughly enjoy? Um, and that has been something that is challenging as a parent because I'm always trying to get my kids to eat healthy foods. And when they see me being picky, picky with quotes on it, um, it's, it doesn't set the best example for my children. So that's a conversation we have a lot in my house with my own children, a couple of whom um, also have ASD and uh, about, it, it's really interesting to me just that across the board, food sensitivities and food peculiarities are, are very specific to ASD. That's not something that you necessarily see in people who have ADHD or other neurodivergencies, but you see a lot of it with autism. You know, I, with me, it's, I, I eat a lot of seafood. I see food and I eat it. So <laughs> Uh, I'm not, my grandfather used to say I was the world's greatest dinner guest because whatever I was eating was the best thing I'd ever had in my life. So, um, <laughs> yeah, I'm not that way at all. <laughs> no. And I try, like I've been a guest at, you know, like my mother-in-law's house. And I know that I'm, I know what the social etiquette is supposed to be. It's very hard for me to accommodate. And what ends up happening is um, when she walks out of the room, my husband gets a whole extra helping of food on his <laughs> plate for my plate. <laughs> so that's about the best way that I can bypass my so the social expectations that are out there. It's very challenging when you're with people who don't understand that food sensitivities and selections are just part of autism. And, you know, I think like Nathan said, yes, we can venture out and try new foods. And, and like Nathan, when I travel, I also enjoy tasting the local um, cultural food, but that's kind of it. Like I want a taste of it. And if I'm not completely enamored with that first bite i don't want to finish the rest of it well let me let me ask you all a question about uh texture because um like i love um cantaloupe which i'm not sure if that's what they call it in the uk or not but this no hold on hold on and i love i love mango what about is mango i'm guessing it's not on your list either then right no mango is delicious but it's the texture is very similar so that was what it's I was getting. Totally different. <laughs> um, what about avocado? I like avocado, but it has to be the perfect ripeness. If it's like twelve hours too early or too late, I I have to make it into guacamole then. Okay. Well, I I can't stand avocado. I love the way it tastes, 
and I like um, guacamole, but I can't eat like slices of avocado. It's disgusting. Um, so that's, <laughs> but I, it's a similar texture though, to the, the first two, there's a little bit, it's like, it's not soft, but it's like, and I don't want to use the word slimy necessarily, but it kind of is, you know, I don't know. So I was just curious. So I think avocado has a, for me, it has to have the firmer ten texture, like almost like al dente. <laughs> right, but um, it's hard to mash it up into guacamole when it's like that. Though, so. Right, but that's when I'm eating it as a slice oh, okay, of it. Okay, gotcha, okay. okay. Uh, like on, on toast or on a sandwich um, okay. or like with eggs in the morning. If it's, if it's not firm like that, then it becomes guacamole. Uh, yeah. It's the same with bananas. Bananas, oh, yeah. I have like a 12 hour time slot that I will eat them. Otherwise they get frozen and thrown into smoothies or baked into bread. No, if it's got a brown spot on the skin, it ain't going in my mouth. It's going to go into banana bread or, or like you say, frozen, but like, I like really firm bananas, like almost green. So, so there's yes. so ADHD people still have a little bit of something going on with that too, but. It sounds like it. Yep. Um, for me, mango is, Mango almost does have that slime that you're talking about. It is a very wet fruit. Uh, and if it gets very stringy, then I can't eat it. But as long as it's not stringy, I can still eat it. And cantaloupe, I have tasted it like probably 10 times in my adult life because I keep thinking I should like cantaloupe. It's a fruit. It's a melon. I should like it. And I can't stand it. Every single time I have it, I just detest it. Well, and my grandmother, I'm not sure that's a texture thing versus a taste thing for me. Well, it's got a little bit of a musky taste, I think. But um, my grandmother and I do this to this to, to still um, sprinkle a little bit of salt and pepper on on cantaloupe. It changes it. And I don't know. Don't give me that look. Just try it. Just try it once. I don't know about that. <laughs> I'm okay being done trying cantaloupe for the rest of my life. But <laughs> okay. All right. Hey, hey Nathan. Nathan, what are your thoughts here on this? Avocados, mangoes, cantaloupe, bananas? I have nothing to say on the, on this matter. I'm enjoying <laughs> I'm enjoying watching your back and forth. <laughs> Do you eat them? Never tried them. Well, so you have a lot of food exclusions. Yeah. Yep. Well, mm -hmm. I, you know, there's nothing like I'll tell you what, if you're if you're comfortable, then that's the most important thing, because it's, it's I don't know, I going off the reservation too far on food. Like I'm, I'm I think. As an only one, well, as an as the oldest child, um, and I've seen this, this is anecdotal, it's not scientific, but it seems that sometimes the older child is the one that's most adventuresome. And the youngest is the least because uh, now, and, and to back that up a little bit, my son, um, he's 18 now, but when he was eating at home before he'd been really exposed to social eating, he ate everything without question. But as soon as he went to school and was around other kids that would, you know, turn their nose up at certain things, he became a lot more in tune with what other kids his age liked. And his palate um, became chicken nuggets and mashed potatoes. And that's pretty much all he would eat. 
for a long time. I mean, literally, that's pretty much all he would eat. So, um, Nathan, let me ask you a real quick question about. Um, so, you you talked about um, in what I read, you were talking about um, going from studying. You know, if I'm not mistaken, it was computer telecommunication, and then one of my loves. Um, which was a, a dual major of mine was was drama. Mm-hmm. Now, um, I, I noticed also that you said that uh, the musical drama students, musical theater students, were more serious about the craft than the pure uh, regular drama. I, and I noticed that myself. But I just musical theater, and I can, I mean, I can carry a tune that maybe. Uh, but I, it, it was just, it was kind of, a, it was segregated in my college also. And was it about, just about the seriousness, le- the level of, of um, commitment? Or was it something, do you think it was something else also? I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Well, I certainly wouldn't say it was segregated. Uh, um, I think it's just because the, the day I walked into college and saw the musical theater student, I thought I want to be as outgoing as them, you know, and uh, yeah, they're not they're an outgoing bunch. There's no doubt about that. Oh, very much so. Yep. Yes. And knowing the people that I did, it was a very uh, formative period in my life. I'll go into it in more detail a bit later on if you like. Now, I would love but, to hear about it because uh, one thing that I think that most of us fail to do. And I know that it's a real challenge for people on the spectrum is change and doing something that's outside of your comfort zone. I mean, very few people, you know, that's their their, their goal is to be outside of their comfort zone, even though we know that's where most of our most of our growth comes from. But the that first conversation that you had with with a professor that you looked up to tremendously, take take us through that. Well. Uh- at that time in my life, I thought that perhaps my future lay in a in an IT-based job, mm-hmm. sitting in front of the computer screen, doing a nine-to-five job, minimal contact with other people, just sitting on my own, looking at the screen, doing my work, going home, starting over again the next day. And there was something in me that yearned for more, but felt I was capable of doing more. I suppose you could say I, I tried to hush it, tried to put it in a box and seal the lid and forget about it. Nevertheless, it kept nagging at me all through the year. And eventually, my tutor called me over after class one day, and we she had a frank discussion with me. She was a tutor who knew me really well, who understood my autism, who understood me as a person. And whatever she said, I listened to. That was the kind of relationship that we had. And she said to me, Nathan, I don't really think IT is for you. My my first thought was to agree with her, to say, yes, Christine, you're absolutely right. But I was in a period of denial at the time, and so I 
I tried to dissuade her. I said, no, I'm, I'm happy enough. I like what I'm doing. But she saw through all that. She mm. said to me, I really think you'd be happier if you decided to pursue another, another course. But then I decided to play along with it. I said, all right, Christine, what would you suggest that I do? And she responded, why don't you consider performing art? Now, again, my initial reaction was to say, yes, absolutely. <laughs> Thank you for seeing that. But uh, I, played it, I kept playing it safe, probing for more information. And I said to her, why, why do you say that? And she said to me, well, you're a very outgoing individual. You know, you like talking to people. I thought. And uh, she said, why don't, you give it a, why don't you give it some thought and get back to me? Stay out this year with us and then make a decision once you've finished. So I did as she asked. I went away. Had a think about it, discussed it with my parents, and eventually we came to the conclusion that uh, it was the best course of action for me. Well, that, that's that's great. I mean, I think it also it goes to um, that tour I, that she was. May I just jump? Oh, sure. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I said this was uh, this was a change that I actually wanted. Um, so it, it was a lot easier for me to make the transition, drastic though it may be. Um, I think that was the first time in my life, certainly in my teenage years, in control of my decision making. I knew deep down that I didn't want to be this shy, retiring individual all my life. I wanted to talk to people. I wanted to get along with them. I wanted to learn those social skills that I, I lacked back then. And I thought that going on a course that requires you to do those things to the nth degree was, was the best thing that I could, was the only way that I could do it. Because now, here, now here's something that I haven't mentioned in my writing. Piece of information for you. It never once entered my mind all through my school years to go to a specialist school. I wanted to stay mainstream. Right. I, I wanted to stay with neurodivergent people. I didn't want to be put into a, what I back then as a box, you know, marked autistic and have the lid closed down on me. <clears throat> this goes back to um, the unfortunate experiences that I recorded in my piece of support staff who back then really didn't understand what autism was and how autistic people function. And they, and they thought that I'd be happier if I was just around fellow autistic people all the time. I didn't want that. I want to be able to choose who my, who my own friends were. And I still do. The difference now is that my social circle is much broader than a, 
there are neurodivergent people, there are neurotypical people. And I, and I think if, uh, <clears throat> and I think variety is very good because then you get a lot of different perspectives on things. Well, I think that you're spot on with that because whenever you're part of um, a group that's pretty much uh, just uh, homogenous, it's very difficult to appreciate other points of view, first of all, much less agree with them. And I think that's one of the issues that, that we all have as humans is that there's some, you know, there's, there's safety in that, you know, in the homogenous environment, but it's not nearly as interesting or as fulfilling or enriching as diversity. So that goes to the, one of the reasons why we're doing this show um, and how Jess and I decided to do it was that very reason. So thank you for that. No worries. Nathan, I love how in your article you describe sitting on the edge of the room and just kind of observing people and seeing how they interact with each other before you joined in. When did I write that? <laughs> it's, uh, let me, well, I can't find the exact paragraph because um, your article is pretty long here, but there is a section here where I think it was when you were at college. Well, while I'm looking for that, let's I don't flip over. actually doing that. Okay. While I'm finding that segment that I'm trying to refer to, let's talk about what, like in your, in your article, it doesn't, you say when you were first diagnosed, you don't specifically remember it. And it was just kind of another thing to add to your life that you just kind of went with it. Yeah. Shall I, give, went, you, shall I give you some background yeah. on that? Please. Okay. Well, I realized now that I was fortunate and that I was diagnosed as a child. And so my parents and I knew, knew what the situation was and knew that we needed to find out, you know, as much as we could about it and uh, to find some the necessary support for me. But for me, in those days, um, it was... I didn't think too much of it at all. There was a slight annoyance that I had another label to add to the dyspraxia that I'd been diagnosed with the year before. But because I hadn't really experienced any anything that could bring my autism to the fore at that moment in time, uh, I didn't really give it much thought. But it was only when a really big change happened in my life that I couldn't that I couldn't handle. But I really began to think about it a lot more. You know, as Sandy pointed out, you know, my the first major change in my life came when I changed schools. And although I knew it was coming, although I we'd been prepared for it several months in advance, 
it was still a severe shock when it, ha- when it happened. And that's when, that's when I found myself being confronted by reality from all different directions. Suddenly, I had to find new friends. I had to adjust to new teachers, adjust to new classrooms, and so on. It all came upon me very suddenly and very, um, you know, an awful lot of changes came awfully quickly, and I felt completely overwhelmed by it all. That is definitely an overwhelming feeling, and I I remember, and now it makes perfect sense. When my sister, she was the youngest of us three, but we were all pretty close in age, and she was interrogative to us, like to the point where she was relentless in questioning about these teachers that she didn't know about, like what we knew about them. Hmm. And she wanted to know, you know, name, rank, and serial number of everybody that she was going to encounter. And now I understand why better. Thank you. And I didn't mean to interrupt, Jess. Go ahead. Not at all. Um, Nathan, I was referring to what you wrote about in the common room, that you sat on the fringes and unwilling to engage in small talk. But as you familiarized yourself, as you watched people and and started to recognize who would walk in and out of the room, then you began to get closer and you began to be able to interact socially with them. Do you find yourself still doing things like that in new social situations? No, not not now. In fact, there's a a little anecdote that I'd like to add to that story. Mm-hmm. Um, once I had uh, acquired sufficient confidence to you know, integrate with fellow students and to talk to them. Um, oh, almost 20 years ago now, I can't remember his name, but there was this one lad who was on the fringes, you know, didn't talk to anyone. He was in the position that I'd been in not, not that long before. And I got talking to him. And I asked him questions. I said, no, why aren't you joining in? Why? Are you sitting on your own? And, and it turned out that he, uh, he was very shy. He felt that he didn't need friends. Um, he reminded me of myself in a lot of ways. And uh, so I started um, encouraging him to join in, to, to meet other students. And after a while, he also joined that circle that used to meet in the common room. That's awesome. Do you think that people have thought of you as shy a lot in your life? I ask because that's a label that has been put on me a lot and I don't feel that I'm shy at all. I just, I'm observing and it takes a little while for me to warm up and figure out the social situation before I like to join in. But I, I don't feel that I'm shy. Um, do you encounter that too? Or have I you? I did in my formative years, but I don't think anyone 
could ever accuse me of being shy now. <laughs> are, are you one of those people that walks into the coffee shop and, and knows everyone's name and says hello to everyone? Uh, I'm one of those people that walks down the street and wishes random strangers good morning, yes. That's wonderful. I love that. What do you want people to know about not just autism, but autism as it relates to your experience? What do you wish people understood and knew? I'd like people to see the positives as well as the not so positives. And what are some of the positives um, for what you? you? What you must understand, Jess, is that, well, I, I'm going to metaphorically speaking, spit in the face of a long-established trope. <laughs> I, think, uh, I think I'm someone who has great empathy for others. I, be I truly believe that is at least thanks to autism. You know, growing up, I, I heard a lot about how autistic people may seem aloof or distant or lacking compassion perhaps but experience i don't think it's the case um another positive that i think my autism brings me is my precision you know not just the, not just in respect of the book <laughs> but uh, in other aspects of my life you know, I'm very good at keep at timekeeping. Um, uh, we have this little running gag about me that I'm never later than five minutes early. <laughs> <laughs> Sandy, you can relate, right? Yeah, see, I'm never later than one minute early, um, but that's because I'm naturally not going to show up. So <laughs> I've got I've overcompensated for it, you know. Nathan, what do you feel some of the not so positives are? Well, some of the what I like to call challenges of autism, for me at least, relate to primarily to emotions. Sometimes, if I get myself into a, if I find myself in a stressful situation or a situation that causes me to worry or whatever it may be, sometimes I find it difficult to calm down, to um, level things out, to, to ground myself again. That's not to say that I haven't made progress in this area over the years, but nevertheless, I do think it's something that I will always find at least a little challenging, shall we say. Yeah, I know that my sister um, tends to, um, as far as things that are, that can um, create stress or concern, is that she's very rarely, at least with my brother and I, and we've had some issues with with our parents' health um, recently. My my mom passed, or my dad passed away, um, about um, just about a year ago, and my mom is. Uh, we're trying to get her to consider at least. Um, 
a, a level of assisted living that she's just not sure that she wants to give independence, give up her independence for. But our sister um, is really, really hyper focused on some concerns that she has that my brother and I are not sure are valid, but we also don't know, uh, for example, as much about the healthcare system as in the UK as she does, obviously. And she's concerned that, um, that the elder population sometimes doesn't get care that they deserve because they don't feel like it's as worth, worth investing um, in a life that's on a steep decline versus uh, somebody else that's going to have longer years ahead of them. And I, I'd be interested to hear which, if you think there's any credence to that, Nathan, because we we keep going over this with her, and she's insistent that we don't know what we're talking about. We, we may not. So, what? And I, I don't want to change the subject too much, but just out of curiosity, which what are your thoughts on that? What my thoughts are on what exactly? Well, w- whether she's concerned that that our mother, because of her age. And that she's not, you know, that she's in, in decline, the decline side of her life, that she's, you know, not get the level of care that somebody that's younger may, because why waste the resources on somebody that's not going to live there? I guess is probably the, the best way to put it. I'm afraid this is a subject I don't feel especially qualified to comment on. Okay. Because the only, the only experience I've had of that is... When my, when my nana spent her final years in a care home, all the times I, I visited her, uh, she was receiving the very best care and she was thriving. That's not to say that... Um, that's not to say that her case is the norm. I don't doubt that there is a lot that needs to be worked on, but this isn't really something that's actually Okay. Yeah, no, I appreciate any that. degree of uh, accuracy. Okay. All right. I get that. Nathan, how did you take up writing? Oh, <laughs> that's a story in itself. Um, I took up writing at a very early age. Um, when I first went to school, I was about four, five. Again, that was a, that was, in a sense, that was a big change for me because up until that point, I had spent all my time at home. I couldn't understand why I had to go to this place and I couldn't see my mum and dad or my sisters for a while. And as I, as I grew older, I, I suppose you could say I started to experience a bit of homesickness. Now, at the same time, my second second oldest sister, not my oldest, the, ne- the next oldest, she used to buy me children's books every week with her pocket money. And I used to and, and we used to read them together. And I remember being enchanted by the bright pictures and the little stories. And after a while, I thought. Why don't I give that a go? Why don't I see if I can write little stories too? So when I was about, I guess, about five years old, 
when I was experiencing this homesickness at school, I used to write little stories in my exercise books. They usually revolved around characters from kids' shows that I watched when I got home from school every day. <laughs> I suppose you could say I wrote a bit of fan fiction to keep my mind occupied and to remind myself of home. And that's how it started, as a way to keep myself happy and to invent some little companions for myself to get me through the day. I mean, don't get me wrong, I loved my education. And I was, I was especially interested in English and reading. But at the, by the same token, I still looked forward to getting home every afternoon. And from there, as I grew older, I started... Uh, Um, I started to have creative writing lessons in school. And of course, thanks to that, my stories became a bit more nuanced. I started to learn about such things as pace and plot and what have you. And um, my love of writing just escalated from there. In point of fact, I still, I still have some of my old school books containing some of my first stories. I'll have to see if I can't dig them up sometime. Have you written any plays at all? Uh, yes, I've written a very short play. Okay. Yes. I'm glad you asked that, actually, because if there's one thing I enjoy doing, it's experimenting with different forms of writing. That's great. So, Nathan, where can people find you? Uh, if, you know, our listeners want to connect with you, if they want to read the article that we've been referencing. Well, you can find me on my Medium account. That's where most of my not-for-profit writing goes. Um, not a very big user of social media outside of LinkedIn. Okay, so LinkedIn. So, Look up North Nathan Cornfield. <laughs> Hi. Yeah, on the medium Hi. account, is that is that medium.com and then your last your first and last name or how what's the URL for that? Send you the URL. I don't know it off by heart at the moment. Okay, I, I can find it. it. I I'll, I just want to put it in the show notes, so that's why I was asking. Well, listen, Nathan, thank you so much for joining us. Uh our hope is that um within uh the next 6 to 12 months we'll invite you on again, um or you can bother us and invite yourself, but we, we want to have guests to come back and we want to check in and see, see how everything's going and where, what, what your direction is at that point. Okay. I think I'll bother you. But okay, I promise very not good. to bother very, you every week. Very good. Just bother, bother Jeff. Don't bother me. <laughs> okay. Listen, thank you so much for joining us and you have a great rest of your day and a great rest of your week. Okay. Thank you very much for having me. Um, it's our thank pleasure. Thank you, Nathan. Um, it's our pleasure. Thank you very much for tuning in to Neurodivergent Selling Podcast. Hope you enjoyed this week as much as we did. Tune in next week. We'll have another great guest. Please share us with your friend and fam friends and family, and also like us on your favorite podcast platform. Have a nice rest of your week, okay? <laughs>